Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics, Dean of the Faculty, also at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here today with a guest who's a friend of mine, and because of his interest in apologetics, we have just a common passion for the church today, and he's written a recent book called Apologetics at the Cross. My friend Josh Chatra is the head of apologetics at Liberty University. You recently wrote a book with an interesting title called Apologetics at the Cross. Now, you weren't always a fan of apologetics. Can you just tell us your story a little bit of why you came to think this is important for individual Christians and the church, especially in our cultural moment today? Yeah, well, uh, I wasn't always a fan of apologetics, uh, but I was a Christian early on in life, and maybe that was maybe that was part of it. I grew up in a Christian home, and um, the gospel just made sense to me, and um I, I, I went off to college, and when I was at college, I, I played college soccer at a school in Georgia, a state school called Georgia Southern. And uh, I, I got really serious about my faith at the time, but I was the only Christian on the team. And so you would think maybe that that would be the time where apologetics would have kind of resonated with me, but in fact it didn't. I was kind of knew one thing, I knew the gospel, uh, I was learning how to study the Bible, and I would just kind of share the gospel with my teammates. And um, at least this crew, we weren't the most intellectual crew. (laughs) So it was kind of like, well, we're not really, a lot of them weren't interested, but a few guys came to Christ, and they kind of respected what I was saying. They respected me as a person. So I didn't necessarily even see the need kind of because of my peer group at the time, even as I was doing ministry. But but then towards the end of my time, I, I took a New Testament class at a state at a state school, which can be a dangerous thing to do. Um, and all of a sudden, I was just hearing things about the Bible, pretty kind of standard things, I think, in in, in critical studies. But it just kind of blew me away, and I began to say, "Okay, are there answers to these things? And how come I've never heard this before?" And so even though I'd grown up in church, I was, I was pretty ill-equipped to kind of to try to kind of deal with this personally. So it started off just as a personal need, really, actually not with the guys I was ministering to. And then fast forward the story a little bit. Um, I go off to seminary, have a little bit of training in apologetics, but then when I come out into the church, I'm just finding this need actually working with college students that that they're having all these questions, and at the same time I was doing a Ph.D. program, and so uh, so all of a sudden, out of this practical need to try to help people, I got into apologetics, even though I was on kind of a theological track at the time. I think it's interesting that you describe how being in the church is when you started getting questions from college students, and apologetics really became important to you, yet earlier when you were in the church, you never learned apologetics per se. Why do you think that is? Why do you think many churches don't teach it? Is a lack of understanding, lack of importance? What do you think is at the heart of the issue? Well, I actually think it's probably multiple things going on there. I mean, I think obviously, uh, you know, one of the things go. One of the problems we've had in evangelicalism is a certain um, lack of seriousness sometimes with how we treat discipleship uh, of, of students and. And so there's just a lack of maybe seriousness. Um, I think I see 
I see some changes there that I'm encouraged about. But um, I, that was, I think, maybe in part my experience just in, 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 in youth group and, and things growing up. Um, I also do wonder, though, sometimes maybe if it's, if it's not just the church's fault, maybe as apologists, we haven't maybe, maybe thought about some things going on in the church, how we could do this better. And I think that's part of what we were doing with apologetics at the cross. Sometimes apologetics can not feel very pastoral, and, um, and we don't take our context in mind. And so I, I sometimes wonder if, um, it, while we're kind of lamenting kind of an anti-intellectualism that, that, that is there and is real, maybe the way this is being presented and even being taught at a, at a graduate and, and, and seminary level is in such a way that it actually, um, the pastors don't exactly know how to implement this into their church. And, and so that was one of the really our kind of concerns and passions as we're, as we're working on this book project for the last few years. Josh, it's pretty common, I think, in a lot of our churches to hear people say that, well, you know, people are loved into the kingdom, not argued into it. Uh, as an apologist, how would you respond to that statement? Well, I would say that um, I would say that we shouldn't have to pick between those. I think there's certain there's a certain I would want to affirm part of that and say, yes, we're called to love. People will know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. And so that is our calling. But I would say we should never kind of, um, we should never pit word against deed or, or vice versa. So certainly we should love people. But one of the ways we love people is that we're, we're willing to talk to them and help, help them work through their problems and work through their questions there's something we can affirm there that's really important and we, we shouldn't kind of go off on either extreme. It seems to me that I mean, what's at the heart of that is that the, uh, the recognition that uh, in, in, many, in many cases our apologetic is actually designed to win an argument, not necessarily win a person. Yeah. Uh, and those, and I, I, think, I think that's important to recognize. Those are two really different things. Um, yeah, Absolutely. Tell me what you mean by apologetics at the cross, and how is this different from the way apologetics is often done? So, so on one hand, one of the things we were trying to do was um, when we when we started looking at kind of um, actually how people were being trained at an undergraduate and a graduate level, there seemed to be this disconnect between um, uh, maybe maybe. Um, the way books were being presented, uh, and and then kind of it was it was left up to the the pastor, the person going into ministry, to translate this for for their ministry, for how to actually do this in a dialogical way, to do this in a conversational way. So this isn't at all anti-intellectual, uh, and, uh, but it's a matter of integrating disciplines. And so what we saw was we saw uh, a lot of books that really helped us and were instrumental kind of in our own development, but they tended to be strong uh, philosophically but not historically, or they tended to be strong, uh, uh, you know, in one way or the other. And what we were looking to do with apologetics is really integrate, apologetics had the cross, integrate disciplines, but then around, and here's the theological part, some of that's the practical part, but around what we think is the core biblical motif, which is the gospel itself. And so we kind of asked the question, it, it, kind, of, it kind of came up one time in a, in a humorous way. I was teaching a class, 
and I asked my students why they got into apologetics. And one of my students who was ex-military, he, he said, well, that's easy. I want to crush the atheists at their own intellectual game. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I said, are we, we are talking about Christian apologetics, right? And I smiled, and, and he did too, and he, he kind of got my point. But, but that got me thinking, um, that got me thinking, um, what is distinctly Christian about how we're doing apologetics? And what if we took the core part of Christianity, the core theological motif, which is the gospel itself, and then not, not only our uh, words, but our posture and our tone, and, and even our, how we're going to develop this is actually built around the gospel. And so... So even though that wasn't quite what I was saying at the moment, later as I was reflecting on that and reading in some different kind of areas, uh, that kind of became a central kind of driving theme of how do we integrate all these different disciplines for the sake of the church and apologetics built around the gospel. And um, and then so apologetics at the cross. The cross is really, we're just using that as a shorthand for the gospel um, as, as we see Paul, Paul do in some of his letters. Yeah, Josh, I wanted to make reference to to a part of one of Paul's letters that uh, I think speaks to the place of apologetics culturally today. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, the first part of that, Paul's very clear that he does not come to the Corinthians with eloquence or wisdom. He's not this impressive guy. He's not knocking their socks off with uh, this compelling argument, uh, but he comes with you know, with humility and a scandalous message of the cross and the power of the Spirit. Um, if if that, I mean, if that's the case, then why 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 are we doing apologetics in the first place? Because if it's just about sort of the preaching the scandal of the cross uh, and the power of the Spirit, then what 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 use is apologetics within that kind of argument that Paul makes? Yeah. Yeah, in our, in our book, we talk about how uh, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 is the kind of standard apologetic proof text. And if there's an, if there's an anti-apologetic proof text, it's 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Um, Paul, you know, in fact, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, which is, on one level, if you're reading it in kind of uh, just, I, th- I think, on a, on a surface level, you could... You could kind of say, hey, well, let's just throw out apologetics and just bring in the gospel. That's all we need is the gospel. I, I, I think there's several reasons, uh, good reasons why most people, most Christians don't read it like that. I think one reason is because if you read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, he's doing lots of other things other than talking about uh, the gospel. <laughs> so it, it seems like Paul is saying something there that... Um, that's important, but he's not saying don't talk about anything else. I think it's, it's, it's Don Carson, the, the New Testament scholar, he says that here Paul is saying, he's, he's in essence saying, I'm going to know nothing else apart from the gospel. If I'm going to think about marriage, if I'm going to think about, um, if I'm going to talk about family, if I'm going to talk about life, if I'm going to talk about work, I'm going to eventually connect it to the gospel explicitly, and I'm also going to think about it. And, he, and I would even suggest, even when we get further and say, we should think about these things in light of this kind of core gospel message. So, and, and then I think the context here is important, too, remembering that Paul's 
speaking to a, a particular culture here that so prizes kind of rhetoric. And it seems what's going on is he's in the situation where they're judging the gospel message by the type of kind of electricity and uh, that, that he brings with his, his rhetoric. And, and, and this is a line, Paul's very contextual, but he'll also draw the line at times. And he seems to be saying, hey, if you're going to use kind of your own kind of games to judge the gospel, well, I'm, I'm going to kind of highlight, the, and he kind of turns the table on them and says, you know, this is this strange thing that, you know, of a cross, of a, of a crucified Messiah, which is very countercultural, uh, in some ways still is. But, and so he kind of turns the table on them, and he says, I'm not going to play your games because you're judging me by these kind of um, cultural standards of, uh, that, that, that Paul will contextualize, but he will draw the line at certain times. I think he, I mean, if you read a little further in that passage too, Paul will point out that the Corinthians themselves weren't particularly impressive either. So the the demand for, you know, this uh, rhetorical flourish uh, in their gospel presentation was a bit hypocritical. Um, Mm -hmm. Let me me follow up one other thing on that. Um, I I think, of course, apologetics has value because of the passage of 1 Peter 3 that you mentioned. Um, I like to put it that it's it's really tough. It is true that people are not argued into the kingdom. They are loved in the kingdom. But, um, you know, the heart generally doesn't rejoice in what the mind also rejects. And yeah. so there's a, there's a real place, I think, for apologetics to set up what, uh, what sociologists call a plausibility structure for faith uh, that makes a big difference. Yeah. Uh, but the Bible's also really clear that we don't, we, we proclaim the gospel. We don't bring people to Christ. You know, we proclaim the gospel, we invite people to believe, but it's ultimately, you know, the, changing people's hearts is ultimately God's responsibility through the work of the Spirit. So how, how does apologetics fit in to just that, that, so that overall, I think, umbrella that is the Spirit's work that ultimately brings people to faith? Yeah, it's, it's obviously... Um, the Holy Spirit works through His, through His Word and through His people, and so um, I think I mean, so we we are the body of Christ, and the Spirit is working uh, in our lives and in our lives as a community. And so, as we're presenting the gospel, uh, we're praying the Holy Spirit will work. And as we're as we're sharing the gospel, and as we're as we're as we're taking on challenges to the gospel and we're explaining the gospel and we're using apologetics, I, I think that should, I mean, it should be bathed in prayer. And this is something, it's not a secular task. Um, Charles Taylor in his work, A Secular Age, which is um, r- really philosophically and sociologically kind of on the backdrop of a lot of, a lot of our book here, apologetic, with, with Apologetics at the Cross, one of the things he observes about um, uh Something that happened in 17th and 18th century is apologetics became this kind of. Um, uh, it, it, he, he talks about how a lot of the elements of prayer and devotion were kind of in Christology were kind of lopped off of apologetics, and it and it seemed more of you're kind of arguing for deism, and 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 he says that this was a big problem with how people actually took up the task of apologetics. They kind of seeded the game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became it became over over rational without this kind of 
um, deep devotion tied in with it. I, and I and I agree with Taylor. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying that's that's where we're at. I think sometimes today apologists are sometimes given a, a poor rap today on this one because I you know I I never actually heard an apologist play you know play off the Holy Spirit from arguments. I mean, I, they tend to want to emphasize when they're talking to Christians the importance of the Holy Spirit. And that's from apologists from a variety of traditions. So I think sometimes maybe, unfortunately, there's a certain caricature against apologists. And, and maybe we need to emphasize that some more, but I, I've never actually heard any apologists make that theological mistake. Hey, Josh, sometimes people yeah. say that apologetics is not important for the church. I think Jesus did a kind of apologetics. Paul did. And interestingly enough, some of the first Christian fathers are actually called apologists. You have a section in the book where you go back and look at them. And I'm curious, what are some of the issues that they were facing? And are there direct implications for where we're at culturally and maybe some lessons we can take from them for today? Yeah, I, I, so some of the works that helped us on here are obviously when, because we are um, integrating um, a lot in the book. I mean, Larry Hurtado's, if I can give book plugs on the podcast here, but Larry Hurtado's book, Against the Gods, was was helpful here as well as some other um, books. But one of the one of the the points I saw as I was as we were working through this points we saw was that one there's you know this is a pluralistic society, so. Um, they they recognized quite obviously it was obvious to them that they were the minority, and people thought that they were strange and against the larger society, um, and and so these are all things that I think we're feeling right now in the West. Um, not not the minority that the very early church was, but I think we're starting to feel. Like for a lot of people, when I talk to them, they are starting to feel like strangers in their own country, uh, especially um, kind of an older generation. I do think there's one big difference that we have to take note of here. One of the big differences is um, even though their people thought their morals were strange and that they were kind of this strange group, um, they had never held power. And although we're seen today as strange and at times against the larger society, um, we're perceived, I mean, and rightly, and this is of course right, I mean, Christians held power in our country. And and we feel like that's starting to kind of slip from our fingers, but we're perceived as having held power and abused power. And we were coercive. And so they were new and, and looked at with suspicion, like we are today, but... Um, there might, I think that there's probably some actual reasons today to look at us with suspicion. <laughs> and so in some ways, that is, there's this connection there, but then there's this challenge, there's this context. Whether you think that's, whether our listeners think that's fair or not, um, we're perceived as being people who've been coercive and, and abusive when we held power. So that's a context we need to take note of and we need to realize as we're engaging with people. That's a great and important difference to bring in. And speaking of kind of power and authority, this is kind of a personal tactical question I have for you. I find myself when I'm being asked tough questions about, say, the morality of hell or genocide in the Old Testament or Jesus being the only way, some of the big questions I get, the older I get, I find myself saying, you know what, if Jesus is really God 
and he saw with moral clarity on this and spoke on it, isn't his word enough? That's increasingly okay for me, but I wonder your thoughts on that approach because it kind of is an appeal to authority and we live in such an individualistic, anti-authoritarian culture. What are your thoughts on that with either believers or non-believers that raise those kinds of tough moral questions? Well, yes. I mean, so, so first thing, one of, one of the points we're emphasizing in our, in our book and, the, and when I teach is that, uh, and I think you both will resonate with this, is that, you know, apologetics is, you know, it, it needs to be contextual and personal and to a certain person. I mean, it's, so, uh, you know, it, you can't always do this. You're speaking at an event, you're speaking at a, you know, you're preaching or something like that, but... Um, you know, we have to take who we're talking to into account here. And I think totally in, in, in situations for me at times, I'll say, so hang, hang on, you're, you know, you don't like, you don't like this idea of hell. Okay. Are you saying that Jesus didn't rose from the dead because you don't like hell? And, and I think at that point, you know, in a nice way, maybe nicer than I, I just came across, but I think they'll say, well, no, of course that's not what I'm saying. And and then you're able to say, well, let's let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus. If if he is Lord, then we should listen to him. On the other hand, let me jump in here real quick. Let me give the other part of this though. I, I think we need to be careful when we do that that we don't get in our mind that we can separate kind of um, uh, the beauty and goodness of 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 Christianity from the truth of Christianity. In other words, if this person is saying. Uh, we can't just say, well, just think logically about this. Don't worry about if Christianity is actually good. Um, we might be able to, for a little bit, try to have that conversation about the resurrection. I think that can be effective. But I think ev- eventually we will need to come back around to saying, hey, there's actually something about God's, in, in this particular example, um, judgment or justice that actually makes some emotional experiential and rational sense. Uh, and, and so 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 I think thinking strategically, you gotta think, okay, who am I talking to? Where is this person at? And it might be that you kind of you kind of sidestep that for a minute. But I think oftentimes we've got to realize we're gonna probably want to come back and 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 try to talk about um, you know whatever that particular issue is some more to help them think through it uh, more deeply. Josh, I think it's pretty commonly said. I've heard it quite a bit that uh, in you know a generation ago, you know when I when I came to faith when, as a teenager, uh, the fundamental question we, we were asking is: Is Christianity true? Uh, and apologetics was really important. My understanding today with Gen Z and millennials is the question they're asking may be a little different. That they're asking sort of what you had mentioned here: Is Christianity good? Is more yeah. the fundamental question that they're that they're asking today. Uh, your, your thoughts on that? Well, I agree. Um, I agree. And so what it, what it means is, um, so, so, so sometimes when I talk to um, certain colleagues, some of my colleagues, it's kind of like, but my job is to talk about the rationality of Christianity. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. Um, and there, and, and, but if this is the problem people have with Christianity, and it might not fit in certain traditional categories of the problems that you like to deal with, 
I don't know what to say to you other than this is this is a key issue. And so we have to, I, I feel, if we're going to do this for the church, um, if, we're, if apologetics is, 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 um, is for the sake of the gospel, then, then we need to kind of figure out what people are struggling with and deal with that. And so um, I, I, I think certainly the question of its goodness is something that we have to address. And, I, and, and this is really where apologetics has its cross is, is really kind of saying, hey, one of the things we have to do is we have to, we have to figure out why people have certain visions of the good life like they have and, and normally people have visions of the good life or visions about what's good because they've, as you mentioned the word earlier, Scott, they've, they've adopted certain plausibility structures or what Charles Taylor calls they have a certain social imaginary that comes to them almost spontaneously. They haven't, haven't reasoned their way to that, but they've more inherited that. And so to deal with, with this question of the good life, we've got to actually teach people and learn how to get into their kind of step into their social imaginary and show them, hey, you've actually, there's something maybe here that, that that's right that I can affirm, but this doesn't actually make sense. So, you know, you, 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 you have this desire for justice, uh, just as an example. Well, that's good and right. And that's something as Christians we should affirm and say, yes, God's a God of justice. We're with you on that. But but does that does that make sense with, with these other things you're saying? Does that make sense within this kind of framework, these other things you're affirming? And a lot of times they haven't worked that out, so we have to kind of come alongside people and help them articulate what they haven't even articulated for themselves because they just inherited it. And so what what we're trying to do here is give people a vision for apologetics that comes alongside of people. And there is an argument, and there is kind of, you know, you're, you're using reason and arguments, but you're coming alongside people to try to help them, um, even at times articulate their own position because they can't get there. They don't even know why they, well, they hold to this. It's just, it just makes sense to them. Josh, thanks so much for coming on. I have many more questions that I'd love to ask you, but I think this will be a good excuse for me to suggest that our listeners go get a copy of your excellent new book, Apologetics at the Cross. Most importantly, thanks for your work just being an apologist who speaks truth, but does it through the lens of the cross and out of a spirit of love and generosity towards people. That's what we're aiming for at Biola University. See you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Josh Chatra, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.